I believe that the most positive influence we can have on our own lives and on our relationships and our communities comes from our own sovereignty, the direct meeting place between ourselves and universal consciousness. It is our true source of wisdom, guidance, stability, creativity, and love. I believe we can deepen our sovereignty and this connection through heart-focused meditation and the transcendent language of poetry. Welcome to the Sovereignty Clinic Podcast with Dr. Zan Nix, a new platform for exploring human consciousness through the lens of spirituality and poetry. Dr. Zan Nix is a teacher, poet, singer, songwriter, and coach. Her books of poetry include An Ocean of Fierce Loving, Poems on Love and Transformation, and Unchosen Poems. This Life is the title of her album of original music. Today's topic is Narcissism and Codependency. We will explore how sovereignty relates to both sides of this dance and how it naturally serves as a healing modality for transforming codependency into healthy narcissism and self-love. Welcome to the Sovereignty Clinic. Today's topic is narcissism, codependence, and sovereignty. We'll explore the challenges a narcissist experiences in connecting to his or her own sovereignty and the role sovereignty plays in the healing of codependency. Because it is often misunderstood, I'll begin with a brief description of narcissism and the narcissist-codependent dynamic. Some associate narcissism with exaggerated self-conceit as where the word originated. The myth of Narcissus, a boy that saw his reflection in a pond and fell in love. Some associate narcissism with aggrandizement, people who are boastful, arrogant, and full of themselves. These are narcissistic qualities, but narcissism has a much broader spectrum. On the one side of the continuum is healthy narcissism, referring to someone that has high self-esteem, is realistically confident, and possesses self-love and self-respect. On the other side of the continuum is what Sam Bachman, a leading expert in the field of narcissism, calls malignant narcissism. This is a more complex and pathological profile that includes a lack of empathy, exploitation, deceit, devaluation, and other abusive behaviors. There are many shades of gray between these two poles, and most of us possess a bit of narcissism, but malignant or pathological narcissism is different, and that's what I'll be referring to in this talk. So what is pathological narcissism, or what is referred to as narcissistic personality disorder, NPD, as it's labeled in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders? It's a condition that starts early as a response to some kind of childhood trauma, be it sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, neglect, parental engulfment, idealization, domestic violence, 
abuse or other mental problems and forms of injury. As a result, the child forms a persona or personality that allows him to navigate through the trauma or escape through fantasy in an attempt to survive the emotional pain. Early on, this is an effective defense mechanism, but as the child grows and remains bonded with his false persona well into adulthood, this fantasy life becomes more hazardous. The protective shield or false self begins to replace the authenticity that would have naturally formed in childhood. The pathological narcissist will then sculpt his or her life around relationships and experiences that reinforce and feed his false self. This outside support of the narcissistic fantasy existence is often referred to as narcissistic supply. And the suppliers in these relationships are referred to as codependents. The codependent of a narcissist, also referred to as a victim many times, is the dance partner. She feeds the false persona by unconsciously entering into a shared fantasy life with the narcissist. The codependent's role fits like a glove, for in her psyche, there is an underdeveloped reservoir of self-worth and self-love, also a byproduct of trauma in her childhood. This creates an unconscious vulnerability and draw towards the narcissist who immediately puts her on a pedestal and paints her as special and rare without knowing her, by the way. And she usually is someone that is unique, strong, independent, successful, intelligent. Gorgeous traits the narcissist in the beginning feels in himself through the association with her. He intoxicates his admirer with love bombing, a term used to describe how the narcissist initially attracts and optimizes his supply. He idealizes her and mirrors her deepest values and interests to make her feel like she's the one. There's a seductive kindness added to oversharing very early after first meeting, material that projects vulnerability or what the author Shahida Arabi calls faux innocence. This might be like the painful details of his childhood abuse or his feelings of failure in a recent divorce. This enables her to feel she can share her deepest insecurities and desires with him. His excessive attention and adoration creates feelings within the codependent of being a close confidant, feeling loved, trusted, seen, desired, perfectly suited for him, and the plans he infers they will share. The fantasy is emotional speed. The codependent pattern of putting all her attention on the needs of the narcissist and thereby losing track of her own is turned on by this fusion. Both are validated. The narcissist who is very needy yet denies having needs and the codependent who denies her own needs out of a need to be needed, i.e. loved. This becomes the overriding pattern. There's a line in the movie Hereafter when Cecil de France says, 
of course you love me. I'm never a victim. I'm never vulnerable. And I never complain. What she is saying to her narcissistic partner is you love me not for who I am, but because I am convenient, which means my needs will never interfere with looking after yours. These are the intuitive words of a codependent that is beginning to recognize her real place in the fantasy. Fortunately, by the end of that movie, she develops her own creative sovereignty and has a real love relationship with Matt Damon. It's a great movie. Where this dance generally breaks down is when the partner wakes up from her codependence and realizes she does have needs of her own. When she voices them, she realizes the reciprocity she has been assuming with her partner, without any proof, by the way, doesn't exist. If the love bombing stage hasn't worn off by then, it will in that moment. A partner's individual needs, especially if she is asking him to be more emotionally available, is seen by the narcissist as a threat, as a slight. It brings up abandonment, anxiety, and anger. The next stage with a narcissist is as predictable as the first. It's one of devaluing the partner as he tries to shift his trauma over to her and thereby regulate his anxiety and regain control. The codependent's initial response is to make excuses for the narcissist, overlook bad behavior. After all, it's uh, aberrant compared to how she knows him. She tries to figure out what she can do to get him back to the real relationship, not realizing this is the real relationship. This pattern of intermittent reinforcement between adoration and devaluation can go on for months, years, even become the adopted pattern in a short or long marriage. Or it can dissolve into the third predictable stage of the narcissistic abusive cycle, which is discard and destroy, which I'll talk about in a minute. Because codependence also runs across a spectrum of awareness and pathology, a healthier codependent who's maybe been through this rodeo before may upset the dance in another way, through her own gradual awareness that something's off. The shared fantasy begins to feel dissonant. There's, not, there's something not quite right. The words aren't matching the actions. Emotions are flat. There's a missing depth in the intimacy or the sex. There's a way the narcissist looks at her that in a caring relationship would indicate affection, but his stare feels vacant, destabilizing, confusing. Closeness feels followed by distancing. Reality begins to chip away at the fantasy. Something simply isn't adding up. As in this poem by Hafiz called Damn Thirsty. First, the fish needs to say something ain't right about this camel ride, and I'm feeling so damn thirsty. Having been through relationships like this in my lifetime on the path to healing my own codependence, I can tell you they can be painful evolutionary lessons. Since a narcissist is lacking a real self, empathy is not present. Communication is tricky and regressed. 
Avoidance is a mastered skill, which means there's lots of blaming and gaslighting in validation of your perception of reality. Your concerns get hijacked and become about his. Passive-aggressive behaviors like stonewalling and disappearing are common. Negativity increases, which is ego-congruent in a narcissist and is his comfort and control zone. He loves it if he can also elicit anger out of you too. Another victory in his control tactics. Nothing matters more than being right. A lifetime of disdain towards vulnerability means emotional unavailability with you. Which is why most narcissists have an approach avoidance get close retreat pattern with intimacy. Along with avoidance comes no accountability. Narcissistic rage at losing his supply can result in an abrupt and shocking move to a new source of supply, i.e. a new partner. Most likely there's already been infidelity. At this point, the devaluing escalates into coldness, lying, dismissal, more rage, and smear tactics in an effort to ruin your reputation and make himself look good. He does this by covertly convincing others to see you as the crazy or the troubled one in the relationship. I found this to be one of the most painful parts of the cycle. Friends and family who are still interacting with the charming mask the narcissist wears couldn't in their wildest dreams imagine the cruelty he is inflicting on you, which in my experience led to the loss of friendships and not speaking openly to people that were confidence and at that time were most needed. As strange as this sounds, this is a major victory for the narcissist. What many misunderstand that have not been in this type of relationship, the discarding and then destroying part of the narcissistic abuse cycle is not a normal breakup. Narcissists discard with no closure, no warning, with contempt, sabotage, and the intention not to just leave a relationship, but to cause as much harm to the partner as possible while acting like nothing happened. These are all predictable responses in a relationship with a pathological narcissist, and the last, about as close as anyone is going to get to the true self of a narcissist. It can cause us to blame and question our own judgment. How could we get so deeply involved with someone that turned out to be extremely different than who we trusted him or her to be? Well, first of all, narcissists are very convincing and most people trust them. It's just that we as partners get closer and therefore see what others will never see. And secondly, trust is a natural response. Within six weeks, a baby trusts its mother. It's in our nature to trust, especially when the environment feels safe to do so. And narcissists are masters at grooming and creating a false sense of safety. We aren't the only trusting followers of these often charismatic individuals. Unsuspecting, very intelligent investors have been swindled out of millions of dollars by scamming narcissists. Unlike narcissism, this codependent dance may only show up in primary relationships. 
But even though you won't find codependency in the DSM-5, make no mistake, if a life is deeply operating in personally destructive ways around codependence or narcissism due to early abuse, there are potential health risks. In a scientific research done between 1995 and 1997 called the ACE study, Abusive Childhood Experiences Study, in which they studied 17,000 individuals, they concluded that child abuse was the greatest medical issue in the world. The researchers of this study claim that what their research exposed was that if child abuse was eliminated, depression would be reduced by 50%, alcoholism by 70%, and there would be 75% less suicide, drug abuse, and domestic abuse. Awareness of these issues not only changes the trajectory of relationships, but also profoundly affects our health. It's useful if you are or have been in a relationship with a narcissist to have a wise counselor, one who knows about narcissism, and take in this understanding of sovereignty and healing if it is useful for you. I received a brilliant piece of wisdom from an insightful therapist I was working with in the aftermath of a narcissistic explosive rage. I knew enough by then not to be confused or surprised, but it still stirred disappointment. He said to me, Zan, when you begin your next relationship, walk in with a suitcase full of needs. I couldn't stop laughing at what seemed like an outrageous metaphor. What he was saying was so counter to my own patterning that I got it deeply, powerfully, clearly. I went straight home and wrote my list of needs. It wasn't that I came into my next relationship with an overstuffed 32-inch suitcase full of self-focus, but I did enter it differently with deeper awareness and solid sovereignty, which did change the whole dynamic. Even though I've been referring to the narcissist as male due to my own bonding experiences, I've met many men that have been traumatized by female narcissists. And interestingly, the behaviors aren't that much different between the genders. Male codependence and female codependence are very similar in behaviors, and so are female narcissists and male narcissists. The dance doesn't differ that much. With this basic understanding of narcissistic codependent patterns, what is the connection to sovereignty? Let's remember the definition of sovereignty in this podcast. It is the joining of our Atman, the God within, or self with a capital S with God or universal consciousness. It is the spring from which our wisdom, guidance, creativity, love, and insight about who we are flows from. This union and transmission are experienced and strengthened through a practice of Radaya heart-centered meditation. Trust and surrender, love and authenticity 
are essential qualities in developing sovereignty. Yet they are differently accessed by the codependent and the narcissist. Let's look at these as they relate to the narcissist first. Trust and surrender. The narcissist's whole life depends on control of his or her environment and the fear of abandonment and loss of narcissistic supply. The persona or false self must be upheld and believed at all costs. This makes it near impossible for a narcissist to seek help or consider he has a need for personal development. Learning requires a certain surrender to not knowing something, and superiority gets in the narcissist's way of this. This is a poem I wrote about trust and surrender called Your Friend, and sometimes when I have read this poem in the past, I, re- I recommend reflecting on your friend as the courageous part within yourself. Tell your friend good things come to good people, that it will all work out in the end, that she will be rewarded one day, and one look into her eyes will tell you what you said was for yourself. Raw vulnerability has always made you squirm. Addictions have kept you out of that neighborhood. Your friend's way of finding home again disturbs you. She gives from places once robbed. She loves from parts abandoned abruptly. She creates beauty out of shattered dreams. What she understands is not positive thinking but what arrives with no guarantees. A dialogue with God translated through silence. You long for what your friend receives, peace, guidance, surrender, what you've labeled weakness and thrown out. So fear is your favorite darling now, the seductress that holds the key. One day, if you are lucky, you will find yourself lost, returning from the honeymoon, shattered but real, longing not for platitudes, but for the heart of your friend. Love. Love requires intimacy and empathy, emotional availability. Narcissists have no real self to share for intimacy to develop. They want love and they also have extreme abandonment anxiety. Closeness threatens the false self. The narcissist has fought to avoid vulnerability for a whole lifetime, so he isn't able to feel the emotions others feel, which is the path to empathy. As Rumi wrote in this poem, your spirit and mine are amalgams melted into each other. When you grieve, I grieve. Empathy. Authenticity. The narcissist's relationship with his true self is one of disdain. Therefore, he will do anything to keep it unexposed. It represents weakness to him, imperfection, ugliness. He's mortified if the mask is removed. So this belief that narcissists can just be themselves, decide to be real, is itself a fantasy and not empathic. 
Years ago, I was in London at the West End Theatre attending for the third time my favourite and one of London's longest-running musicals, Blood Brothers. It is the heart-wrenching story of two brothers separated in youth and the mother who tragically sees both of her sons dead, lying on the stage, side by side, at the end of the play, a result of one profound decision she made as a young woman. That particular night, Barbara Dixon, a remarkable actress who played the lead, came out to take her bow at curtain. But something happened I'd never watched before. She was still visibly in the role of a grief-stricken mother, seeing her two dead sons for the first time. She was still lost in the fantasy of the play and a role she couldn't break that night when it was over. This is how I think about narcissism. Decisions are made and a role is chosen early, for good reason at the time, and throughout life the role keeps walking on stage until the person forgets he is an actor. Occasionally with a life-altering incident, divorce, loss of a child, a brush with death, but it's still rare that these actors break role. The quality of authenticity we bring to sovereignty and the courage to be real, courage coming from the French word heart, is unavailable to a pathological narcissist. Is it possible to develop? I don't know. But I think it would require a strong, mysterious, and unusual type of incentive. Sam Vaughan himself, the author, researcher, and scholar I mentioned earlier, claims he is still a narcissist, but now he channels the need for narcissistic supply into helping victims heal. He tells a story about what it took for him to transform his own pathology to where he is today. He says he lost everything, his marriage, his money, his reputation, not once, but three times during his life. And each time this happened, he was diagnosed with a narcissistic personality disorder. The third time, he said, something got in that started him on his path to becoming one of the leading experts on narcissism and to developing a therapeutic model that leads a patient through decomposing and reconstruction of the psyche, a process based on his own experiences. I guess you could say, similarly, inspired is this podcast to take my own education in psychology and spirituality, along with personal experiences, to shine a light on this opportunity for growth and deeper understanding. I feel there is an element of luck when we meet people or have experiences that wake us up, and misery has a way of doing that. It can reveal our blind spots, and I've learned a lot from narcissists in my life. This is a poem I wrote about that called Tough Love. If you are lucky enough to meet the destroyers of your blindness, remember... Demolition contractors have one job to do, and it's not to mourn over an empty lot. Your false structure, now gone, can become anything once you move on. 
and will. And how Mark Nepo talks about these gifts of transformation in his poem, Fighting the Instrument. Often the instruments of change are not kind or just, and the hardest openness of all might be to embrace the change while not wasting your heart fighting the instrument. The storm is not as important as the path it opens. The mistreatment in one life never is crucial as the clearing it makes in your heart. This is very difficult to accept. The hammer or cruel one is always short-lived compared to the jewel in the center of the stone. Sovereignty is like a nakedness, a transparency, a faith in asking the question, who am I? Ramana Maharshi's suggested inquiry with his recommendation not to answer, but simply listen. Authenticity from this perspective is unscripted, without roles, requiring a love affair with humility and not knowing, as in this poem I wrote titled Song of the Wren. Your writing style appeals to me, God, giving just enough to stay engaged, but not so much that life's predictable. Devoted to your direction like a newborn wren, I open my beak to swallow whatever you place there. I am only hungry for the meals you bring now. Knowing every nest you push me from, I fly a little more gracefully. So why do I believe sovereignty is different when it comes to codependence and can also be an effective healing modality? Let's go back to the three qualities, trust and surrender, love, and authenticity. In a way, codependents already have these qualities. They are just misdirected. Codependents are very well versed at trusting and surrendering. That's what we do. It's a natural response. It's just to a false God. And the capacity for love is there and fast, but it is lacking a foundation of self-love and self-worth. So the flow of giving and receiving is constricted. And finally, when it comes to authenticity, a codependent need to be right enough, good enough, needed enough to be loved by the other stifles the evolution of her recognizing the Atman within, a reflection of God, far more infinite than the word enough. And listening with the heart, essentially all we are doing when we deepen our sovereignty, is already instinctual and a well-developed skill. People seek us out for this. We know how to empathize. It's just a shift in focus. This is how I've experienced sovereignty playing a powerful role in the healing of codependency. By having a regular practice of quieting the mind and resting in the heart, there is a deeper awareness of our emotional state, a clarity about our emotional needs, an insight about our environment and relationships. With the melting of our Atman with God or universal consciousness, there is also a window of self-love. Self, 
with a capital S, which means the perfection of our essence and what it is designed to become and illuminate. We feel a different kind of love bombing, more subtle, but deeper. There's a revaluing that asks for self-loyalty and self-devotion. It overhauls the engine of giving to a clear hierarchy with sovereignty first. And it fills the tank with supreme, supreme self-compassion, supreme self-love, and supreme self-care. Unlike narcissists falling in love with a small physical reflection, we fall in love by looking into the heart for a reflection of self, which is infinite God and love. With that comes a devotion to our own authenticity, needs, desires, creativity, values, and commitment to creating beauty, harmony, justice, reciprocity, and love in the world. We teach others how to love us by how we love ourselves. It is a love that carves away at codependence and emboldens confidence, as in this untitled poem by Rupi Carr. Did you think I was a city big enough for a weekend getaway? I am the town surrounding it, the one you've never heard of but always pass through. There are no neon lights here, no skyscrapers or statues. But there is thunder, for I make bridges tremble. And I'm not street meat. I am homemade jam. Thick enough to cut the sweetest thing your lips will touch. I am not police sirens. I am the crackle of a fireplace. I'd burn you, and you still couldn't take your eyes off me. Because I'd look so beautiful doing it, you blush. I am not a hotel room. I am home. I am not the whiskey you want. I'm the water you need. Don't come here with expectations and try to make a vacation out of me. Intimacy with God or universal consciousness creates a desire for relationships with others that mirror sovereignty. We want our relationships on every level, primary, familial, friendships, professional, to resemble what we mean when we say namaste. The God in me greets the God in you. We aren't so drawn to fantasy relationships, and when we are, we recognize them more quickly. We realize people worth holding on to don't let go of us either abruptly or carelessly. We want our whole selves in wherever we expend our energy, which means being truthful about who we are and what we need. Described beautifully in this untitled poem by William Stafford. It's like this truth is. It's looking out while everything happens. Being in a place of your own between your ears and any person you face will get the full encounter of yourself. When you hear any news, you ought to register delight or pain, depending on where you really live. Now I am fading with this ambition to read with my brights full on, 
to write on a clear glass typewriter, to listen with sympathy, to speak like a child. I believe that creating good and healthy lives for ourselves automatically when this is coming from the qualities associated with sovereignty, builds a huge reservoir of love for others. The most attractive qualities codependents have that naturally serve as a satellite dish to narcissists are empathy, honesty, sensitivity, and emotional availability. Most codependents are highly sensitive people when we get grounded in sovereignty, those qualities work intuitively in healthier and more dependable ways. There's more sensitivity to integrity when it's present and lacking in another's energy. The heart registers incongruencies between words and actions sooner and acts more as a compass, respecting what is instead of denying it, struggling against it, or judging it as not right or fair. There's more sanity in the sense of where that word first originated, awareness of the sacred. Like my dog that raises his nose, sniffs the air and knows things, we do too. As in this poem I wrote called Hummingbird. Nature mirrors what I am learning. Even this hummingbird sucks at the center of a synthetic flower. Anything alive will be attracted to beauty. The difference? When the hummingbird realizes there's no nectar, the shimmering darling moves on. Since we have a practice of radaya meditation, we have a habit of going towards the heart rather than away from the heart when there is hurt, pain, and vulnerability. That gives us courage and empowerment which we don't bargain with, as the Greek poet Odysseus Elites said, that which disempowers you is unfit for your song. And as Hafiz says in this poem, absolutely clear, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. The missing piece in codependence is self-love with a capital S. The self that is both Atman and God or universal consciousness. To put it simply and directly, this self-love leads to healthy narcissism and is the path away from both pathological narcissism and codependence. Self-love is the prayer of sovereignty. Let us end with a short Radaya meditation. Radaya meaning spiritual heart. Close your eyes. Keep your back straight. Take three deep breaths.
Continue breathing softly. And notice the void at the top of your in-breath and the bottom of your out-breath. And hang in those voids. Rest in the voids. your attention on your heart. Breathe into your heart. And ask this question. And simply listen. Thanks for listening to the Sovereignty Clinic podcast with Dr. Zan Nix. For more from Dr. Zan Nix, go to drzannix.com or subscribe to this podcast. We hope you found this time enjoyable. Have a great day.